Good morning. Let's turn to the Lord before we look at his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light in our path. We ask that through your spirit, your word will shine in our hearts this morning. That you will instruct us, correct us, and reprove us as you see fit. We also pray for grace, Lord, to obey and to live out your word so that we may bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll be reading from Romans 12. So can I kindly ask you to stand as we read, and it's on page 1006 in your pew Bibles. Just two verses we're reading from there this morning. Romans 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Please keep your Bibles open in Romans 12 as we go through God's word together. The psalmist in Psalm 116 that Joanne read for us earlier is in a very distressing and a dangerous place. We are not told who the author is of the psalm, but most commentators believe it is David. We're also not told exactly what it is that was threatening his life. This is a good thing because if we were told exactly what it was and we couldn't identify with it, we could switch off. But because we don't know, you and I can put our own life situation in this psalm. Here, David feels the ropes of death around him. He is overcome by distress and sorrow of the grave and the torments of the thoughts of death overwhelm him. But instead of his desperate situation driving him away from God, it drove him to God. And appealing to the mercies of God, he called on the name of the Lord. He cried to the Lord, Yahweh, save me. And the Lord turned his ear to him and rescued him from death. I wonder, have you been in that dark, distressing or dangerous place? where you felt totally overwhelmed and powerless? It may have been when you went through a serious illness or when you lost a loved one. Perhaps it was when you lost your job or you suffered a relationship breakdown. Maybe it is in times when you went through the darkness of depression. When you were in that dark, desperate and dangerous place, who did you call upon? And where did you run to for help? You see, David remembered the mercies of God in his predicament. He remembered God was gracious, righteous, compassionate, powerful, and good. And he cried out to him for help, and he was delivered. As David reflected on the Lord's deliverance 
and the mercies of God to him. He said in verse 12 of Psalm 116, how can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? We are now in 2024, uh, just like Mark reminded us earlier, by the grace of God. And I am sure you, like me, have looked back in the last week or two, and most likely periodically throughout your life, and reflected on God's goodness to you. Then like David, you have asked, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness towards me? In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul answers this question for us. Suffice to say, we can never repay the Lord for all that he has done for us, but we can present ourselves as living sacrifices to him. It's verse 1 of Romans 12. Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Notice Paul begins with the word, therefore. And as we have heard numerous times from past messages, when we see the word, therefore, we should stop and ask what it is there for. Paul is linking what he's been talking to us about in the first 11 chapters with what he's about to say. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is looking at profound doctrine and teaching about what God has given believers. These are what he calls mercies of God. So what are mercies? They are undeserved blessings. That's what mercies are. We know that we don't deserve anything from God because we are sinners. And the just reward for sin is death, Romans 6.23. But it is through the mercies of God that we are transformed from sinners to saints. These are some of the mercies that Paul talks about in the first 11 chapters of Romans. Grace, divine love, the Holy Spirit, peace, God's patience and kindness, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, adoption, righteousness, freedom from the power and the penalty of sin, ongoing intercession by the Spirit and the Son, resurrection, glory and honor, eternal life, all bound up for our salvation in Christ. And just listen to Paul's response after considering all these mercies of God. Romans 11, 33 to 36, all the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul bursts into praise or doxology in response to the mercies of God. Now here's the important thing or point. The mercies of God become our motivation to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. It's an act of thanks, an act of worship in response to the great and numerous mercies of God. It is therefore good to dwell on the mercies of God and to be reminded of them through preaching, teaching, and song worship. Singing good hymns and songs bathed in scripture reminds us and helps us to focus on God's mercies. We will also have the privilege to be reminded of God's mercies as Martin leads us in communion shortly. 
Paul could have used the fear or fear of God as a motivation, but he chose to use a gentle command to urge them to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. This is so much like our God. When he passed by Moses in Exodus 34, he chose not to display his infinite power, but displayed his mercies proclaiming the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, this also highlights the importance of doctrine. Sometimes people will ask, why so much doctrine and teaching? Can't you be more practical? The truth of the matter is that our Christian duty flows out of doctrine. Doctrine and duty are inseparably linked. In the book of Romans, Paul spent 11 chapters on doctrine before turning to the application or duty of asking the believers to respond by presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice. He does this in the other epistles too, like Ephesians, where he spends the first three chapters on doctrine before turning to the believer's duty in Ephesians 4 verse 1 saying, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Listen to what he says about the importance of doctrine in Colossians 1, 9 to 10. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. For what purpose was he praying this? Verse 10. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. Our Christian duty flows out of doctrine. It's what you believe that essentially designs your behavior. The more you understand about the richness of your salvation, and the richer your grasp of it, the greater your motivation to offer yourself constantly as a living sacrifice. When pastors and other preachers teach duty without teaching doctrine, they weaken the word of God because they eliminate the motive. They might stir up the emotions, but that brings no long-term commitment. Now, I'm not saying we should not be practical in our sermons at all. There is a place for that. But doctrine is absolutely essential. Now, have you ever wondered how the first century's, first century's believers responded to Paul's doctrine? Now, even the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter I'm talking about here, in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, Paul also wrote you when, uh, with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. They must have had some tough Bible studies in their house groups and small groups, just like we do sometimes. 
But instead of dis- dismissing the hard teaching and wishing for something else, they wrestled with the scriptures to get a clearer understanding of the truth. Let's do the same. Receive God's word with eagerness of heart and examine it like the Bereans in Acts 17 verse 11. If you hear hard things in the preaching and teaching, ask Greg or Ian, the deacons. You can also ask any other, um, any other mature Christian. I don't need to overemphasize the importance of studying the word of God. All of you know that. And so let's make the most of the one-to-ones, the house groups, and the other ministries to dig deeper into God's word. And if you are a new Christian and you don't have a reading plan, why not read through Romans this year? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Paul is talking in a Levitical temple language, which was obvious to his audience. The first century people were familiar with the offering of sacrifices, whereas we are not. They had stood by the altar and watched as an animal was identified as their own, as it was slain, as the blood was offered, and as a dead animal was burnt on the altar and ascended in flames to God. To suggest that they themselves should be a sacrifice was a striking piece of imagery. The animal, which was initially alive, was killed and offered as a dead animal. This, of course, pointed to Christ, who died for sin once for all, and no more dead sacrifices are necessary. In Romans 6, Paul tells us that as Christians, we died and were buried with Christ Then we were gloriously made alive in him. Because we are alive in Christ, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Presenting our bodies as living sacrifices is giving our entire selves, spirit, body, and mind to God. Now we can only do this, firstly, if our soul or spirit is given to God. Paul says at the beginning of verse 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters. Other translations like the New King James use the word brethren. Paul is addressing fellow born-again believers. No other offering is acceptable to God unless we have first offered him our souls. The unregenerate or unbeliever cannot present his body as a living sacrifice because he has no saving relationship to God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is spiritually evaluated. Contrast this with what Paul says about the loving generosity that the Macedonian churches gave and and how this was possible and was acceptable to God. Their offering or their offering was acceptable to God because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5. If you have not repented of your sin and acknowledged Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, 
nothing you do can ever please God. You need to be born again. And God's word tells us today is the acceptable time of salvation, not tomorrow or some other time that we have no control over. So why not start the new year with new life in Christ? If you would like to do that, or you want to know how to do that, please make your way to the Connect Corner after the service and talk to a member of the team. Or if you're watching online, contact, contact the church through the contact details on the church website. Secondly, we present ourselves as living sacrifices when we give God our body. Because our souls belong to God through salvation, he already owns the inner man, but he also wants the outer man, the body in which the inner man dwells. Our bodies, however, are more than physical shells that house the souls. They're also where old and redeemed humanness or the flesh in which sin can reign or reside. You can read about this in Romans chapters 6 and 7. The body which is intricately linked with the mind is still the center of sinful desires, emotional depression, and spiritual doubts. Paul gives insight into the, that sobering reality when he says in 1 Corinthians 9:27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In order to maintain a holy life and testimony and to minister effectively, even the great apostle had to strongly and continually battle with sin. Paul said to the sinful Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.13, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And that is why Paul in Romans 12.1 urges brothers and sisters to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Our bodies are to be holy. Holy, or hagios, in the Greek, has a literal sense of being set apart for a special purpose. Remember the animal that was offered at the temple? It had to be without spot or blemish. The physical purity symbolized the spiritual and moral purity that God required of the person offering the animal. Our living sacrifices to God should be holy, for only this is pleasing to God. Now, God speaking through the prophet Malachi rebuked his people for offering polluted offerings. In Malachi 1, the Lord says, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. If you priests who show contempt, sorry, it is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? 
Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one, none of you would, or one of you, sorry, would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I will not accept your offerings. God's people were offering him polluted offerings, and he did not accept them. How are you presenting your body to God? Are you battling strongly and continually with sin like the Apostle Paul? Or are you simply giving in and letting sin reign in your body? Sometimes defeating our sin may require us getting help from a fellow Christian we trust, or even your spouse, so that you can be accountable to them, and so that they can also pray with you in your, in your battle with sin. And if we need a reminder of how radical and ruthless we ought to be fighting against sin, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 8 and 9. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Is there a place that you need to stop going to in order to stop sinning? Is there a relationship, a gadget or something else that you need to get rid of in order for you to stop sinning? This is how radical we should be when required as to present our bodies as holy to the Lord. The theologian John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He was right. Our fight with sin is a serious matter and unless we battle with it strongly and continually using all the God-given means at our disposal, it will defeat us. Sin mars our relationship with God, and it is one of the reasons we lack the joy of the Lord, and we don't enjoy the full blessings that God has in store for us. Now, all of us fail in some battle, in, in our battle with sin, in some way, and at some time. But thankfully, we have the mercies of God, namely his grace and his forgiveness that he avails for us. After we repent of our sins, let us then get up and fight on in the strength of the Lord, remembering that the Lord who is, in, is within us is greater than Satan who is in the world. Now, can I recommend to you Ian's sermon from last week, especially if you didn't listen to it, for the ways we can continue pressing forwards to attain Christ this year and beyond. You will find it very, very helpful. Thirdly, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice when we give God our mind. It's Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is, a mind that we, it is in the mind that we make choices as to whether we will, ex we will express our new nature in holiness 
or allow our flesh to act in unholiness. The mind determines what the body does. Paul begins with a negative command, do not be conformed to this age, implying this is a process that was most likely occurring already. To be conformed carries the idea of being molded into a certain pattern. Like a silversmith pours his molten metal into a mold so that the metal conforms to the shape of the mold. This age, or this world in some, some other translations, is talking about the satanic system with all its teaching, speculations, opinions, philosophies, allurements, and so on that are anti-God. This is the world we live in, and according to 1 John 5, 19, it's under Satan's sway. We only need to switch on our phone, our TV, log on to the computer, or read papers or magazines to see or hear the reality of this. There are innumerable ungodly things all vying for our minds. Instead, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Greek verb for the word transformed is the same word from which we get the word metamorphosis. This is the same word that is used in the passage where we find Jesus transfigured, such as Matthew 17, verse 2. He was man, but he was literally transfigured into a glorious form. So positively, Paul commands us to be transformed outwardly in conduct, into conf in conformity with the renewed inner nature. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit achieves this transformation by the renewing of our mind, an essential and repeated New Testament theme. The outward transformation is affected by the inner change of the mind. And the Spirit's means of transforming our minds is the Word of God. If you want to have a renewed mind, you have to spend time and effort in God's Word so that your mind is saturated with God's Word. This is hard work, and there are no shortcuts. That is why way back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, when God was establishing his people, he commanded them. He said, these words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, Bind them as a sign in your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. If you are to present your body, which is in the present tense, your mind will need reprogramming away from the corruption that is in the world. Lastly, and very briefly, as our minds are renewed, we will then give our wills to God. The end of Romans 12 verse 2 says, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, 
and perfect will of God. God's will for us and our lives is laid out in the scriptures. As we learn to know what God's will is, as it's revealed in scripture with our renewed minds, we will be able to discern or properly assess everything and accept only what conforms to God's will. Our lives can only discern what the will of God is by doing those things that are good, pleasing, and perfect to him. David said, How can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? How will you answer that question this year? Amen. Amen.